Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. Welcome to another segment of the Cisco and Falzone Hour, broadcast and politics. Tonight we have a special guest, right to work expert Mark Mix, president of the National Right to Work Committee, and he'll be discussing. We will be discussing California ports key to U.S. supply chain among world's less efficient, especially with, with, with the governor that is running California right now. I'm not surprised. Welcome, Mr. Falsone. What's the rant of the week? Rant of the week, I'm out of Facebook jail. For the, oh, I've been congratulations. In Facebook jail. Yes, yes, we'll see how long that holds. Um And, uh, yeah, that's you know, I've been watching the Rittenhouse trial, right? And, um, I mean, has everyone seen the film clip of the mob of people, of someone literally jumping on his body as he fell down, the next guy coming over and beating him over the head with a hard uh, skateboard? Right. And uh, the politics involved in our judicial system is just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, I've said this before. We're no longer a nation of laws. We're a nation of men, and we've got problems. We sure do. That's that's my rant of the day. Well, I'll tell you. The cases of coronavirus are hitting the states with the most highest vaccination in the nation, and not just in the nation, in the country. I'll give you an example. Vermont, Vermont, which is, has about 75 to 80% of, the, of their people vaccinated, Cases in the hospitals, all over. I mean, the, the, the ratio has just basically gone through the roof. Countries like Portugal and countries like uh, Spain, they have a high rate of infection in hospitals. Countries like South Africa, which only has, they only have 10%, 10% of their people jabbed are not seeing these problems at all. So for everyone out there, the Fauci's of the world and the creepy Joe of the world, guess what? That's not going to fly anymore. It's not. It's going to basically... uh, The lies are, are being exposed. The lies are, have, have been exposed and will continue to be exposed. And the CEO of, of Pfizer just came out and said that it's not really a vaccine. It's gene therapy, editing genes, live broadcast. So, hey, God has a way of working things out. And uh, things, things are, are working out. On the other side, the, the supply chain issue continues to be an issue and will continue to be for quite a long time. So as we go through the winter months, please prepare yourself because they're going to try and make sure that, that especially this administration, will not be there to help. As a matter of fact, they're trying to take off the, the, the Michigan pipeline. The Michigan pipeline, which basically will cut off a lot of resources, not just to the state of Michigan, but to everyone else. So just keep that in mind, that things are not going to be pretty. Just to prepare yourself. On the other hand, we had the situation with as Mark has mentioned, with Kyle Ritterhoff in Wisconsin. Hey, the kid is going to get off. 
because he defended him. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Oh, the was. jury's under a lot of pressure already. He was. Uh, I, there's yeah. nothing guaranteed here. Although, uh, although, yeah. thank God, the judge seems to be uh, decent uh, from what I've okay. seen. I heard that there was fireworks today, but I haven't seen any clips yet. You know, fireworks between the prosecutor and the judge. I guess the prosecutor's under a lot of pressure. You know, the uh, leftist mothership is contacting him and telling him, you're blowing it, kid. Do something, you know? Yeah. Hold on. Hold on. We, have to, uh, bring in our, we, we have to bring our guests. Yeah, we're okay. going to have to bring our guests in. Hold okay. on. Let's give him a call right now. And uh, Mark Mix. One ringy dingy. Uh, yeah. ringy dingy. Wait, let me see here. But anyway, uh, keep going until he comes on, you were saying. Okay, I was going to say, you know, the gas shortage, whatnot. Uh, it's all intentional. Don't think this is just because they're bumbling idiots. They are bumbling idiots, but this is intentional. This is vindictive. You will pay more for gas. You will drive I, I, less because that's what we want yeah. you to do. Mark, Mark, hold on. I have the other Mark on the line. Okay. Welcome, Mark. Hi, how are you? Uh, right, F- finally we connected. I apologize for our uh, miscommunication the last time. Oh no, that was that was an interesting evening. I was uh, flying home and in the cab, and when you called, I, there was some cute confusion on our end too. So I'm glad we could reconnect. Definitely, definitely. So um, I had mentioned in the beginning uh, your uh, right to work expert. Um, President of the National Right to Work Committee, which is a 2.8 million member public policy organization, and you also serve as the president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. Uh, topic uh, supply chain, mm, mm-hmm. but initially, initially we'll we'll start off with the current situation of the supply chain in California of what's going on with the uh, the ports. Uh, I think there's a lot of confusion in regards to they're saying, well, if we get enough truckers and if we get enough uh, uh, 24-7 people out there, we can get this problem fixed. But according to California laws, uh, that tends to not be true. Yeah, it really is an interesting issue, and and the port issue is is something that we all have to be concerned about. And and it's not a problem that was created, you know, just in the last couple of months. I mean, obviously, the pickup in the economy as as our the COVID situation calms down a bit um, is is part of it. But there's institutional problems, kind of legacy problems, if you will, in the ports. And you know, we have, don't have to look any farther than the World Bank. They they just recently released a port performance index, and they rated. 350 ports all around the world from all the countries you can imagine, places you can't even name, and they rated them based on efficiency, the time it takes to get a a ship into port, get it unloaded, and get it back on its way. And unfortunately, the two ports that are the most important ports in the United States are Long Beach and Los Angeles. They're basically Mm -hmm. right side by side. And 40% of all the imports that we receive in the United States come through those two ports. And the World Bank did this analysis, and they found out that those two ports, the two most important ports for the United States, the number one importer in the world, were ranked 328th and 333 in efficiency out of 350 ports. I mean, the West Coast, basically you have a situation on the West Coast where there's 29 ports all the way from Seattle to San Diego, and they're controlled by the International Longshoremen and Warehouse Union, um, and this is a very, very powerful union. They, they control the ports and kind of how things go there to a large degree. And the first port that you see uh, in, on the West Coast that's rated by the World Bank is, I think, Seattle at 238 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is not this is not – this was before COVID that this index was created. So you had an institutional problem at the port, and then you overlay, to your point, you overlay California law, California regulation that's going into effect. And primarily there's a bill out there that really has had an impact on the ports, and it's called AB5, Assembly Bill 5, that was passed back in 2018. And it's really kind of a radical piece of labor law for California. 
and it basically says that they want to they want to eliminate the independent contractor. And when when we talk about independent contractors, I mean the easiest way to, to describe that is kind of Uber and Lyft drivers. These are folks that turn on a machine in their car. They go to work when they want. They turn them off when they don't want to work. They go where they want to go. They're not controlled basically except by where the business is from this algorithm that's created by the software company. Well, interestingly enough, in California, they want to make those people into employees, and there's a very simple reason why they want them to be employees is so they can be unionized. You can't unionize independent contractors, but you can unionize employees. And one of the things that's happened with AB5 is it's affected the trucking industry, back to your point, about the lack of truck drivers at the port. Um, one right. of the reasons for that is AB5, that truck drivers, owner-operators who have made the decision to be owner-operators and independent contractors, are saying they don't want to work under that regime. And so they've vacated the port. The Class 1 drivers that, uh, that were primarily responsible for getting you know, the containers off and getting to the warehouses, they just don't want to work out there anymore. So that's kind of caused the shortage, too. So there's a lot going on at the port, and uh, it's not all what you hear you know, about Biden just saying that we need to lower our expectations. I mean, I don't think that's a solution at all, but it has to do with lots of issues that are legacy issues and then, of course, issues that are, we're dealing with right today. Definitely, definitely. Uh, Mark, you have a question for Mark. <laughs> yes, I, I don't see how uh, capacity, uh, you know, the, the uh, economy's activity can be uh, causing this because just last year uh, when Trump was in office, the labor participation rate was much higher than it is now. The economy was much more active than it is now. There, there was no pandemic at the, it was no phony pandemic at that time. So, the, the fact that you know these uh, people are trying to claim that oh, it's because you know we've created such a terrific economic environment is just more propaganda, baloney, and a. I wanted to see if my namesake agreed with me on that. Yeah, Mark, I, I think you make a great point. If you look at the numbers, I mean, obviously the numbers, the, quote, employment numbers have improved since January, February, March, April, May, or June of last year when the total economy was shut down. But to your point, you're following the important statistics, and that is labor participation rates, the number of people, the number of job openings there are. I mean, the fact that we're recovering from an economy that was completely shut down for, you know, eight or nine months is, shouldn't be a surprise, and frankly, thank goodness it isn't. But you're right. I mean, the, the economy over the four, year, the four years prior to where we are today was very robust, to your point. And it seemed like we were getting things through the port. We were getting imports. I mean, they were growing. Um, employment was growing. Employment in all sectors was growing. Uh, so this notion that somehow it's, it's uh, this, this correction in the economy that's causing it, when the economy is actually performing below where it was, to your point, Mark, a year ago is really mm -hmm. quite like confusing, and it's and it's no it's it's not really anything more than just kind of framing the issue by uh, the corporate the greedy corporate media the corrupt corporate media and an administration that has messed up just about everything they've touched and one of the things they've touched here is continuing to basically encourage union officials and and the, the ILWU on the West Coast their contracts coming up early next year and so this is kind of negotiation tactics to make you know people say well we got to settle this you got to give them what they want and frankly there are people out there that need to get more but the bottom line is to your point is this is not new um, it's not a result of, of you know this great Biden economy which is not a great Biden economy um, so there's something more in play here and uh, and I think you're right about that exactly what it is whether it's one thing or multiple things I, I tend to think it's it's multiple things but the actual the way the ports work um, and there's no better evidence than the infrastructure bill that passed last Friday uh, Biden hasn't signed it yet but there's 17 billion dollars in that infrastructure bill for what they call port renovation port innovation you know increasing the, the port capacity in the United States but interestingly enough, in one of the provisions in that piece of the bill says that none of the money can be used to automate the ports. And automation is one of the most important parts of creating better efficiency, better productivity. And the unions went on strike back in 2002 over employers and shippers trying to install sensors and scanners and barcodes on the port so they could better track containers. But, of course, the union objected to that because they don't want any new technology. They want to keep those jobs. And obviously, if it was my job, I'd want to keep it too. But at some point, you've got to change, and you've got to recognize that technology can help with a growing economy. Yeah, 
true. Well, just just look at the influence that the teachers' union has on the Democratic Party. Look how the Democrats willfully, without conscience, hold down inner-city youths in these just despicable scholastic uh, environments and fight school choice and school charters tooth and nail. So they're they're, uh, preventing the betterment and a better education for inner-city youth while claiming to be their champions, they're just so hypocritical and pathetic. So yeah, Mark. So yeah. On the West Coast, you got the ILA unions, which which are strong, and I'm sure a lot of these uh, sissy boy politicians are afraid of them as well. Uh, you know, because you got these uh, you know rough, tough longshoremen and these uh, pencil neck geeks like Adam Schiff. You know. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, 254, uh, do you have a question for Mr. Mark Mix? Not yet. All right. Uh, 908-433, do you have a question for Mr. Nix? Mix? Um, it might be a stupid question, but I'm here on the Jersey Shore, and um, it's we have a lot of restaurants, a lot of ev- everything, um, you know, shops, shopping, and there's a lot of, um, so after the pandemic and we kind of opened again, like restaurants were doing pretty good and every, you know, things were lively and picking up. And now all of a sudden, um, I just noticed that a lot of, there's a lot of restaurants that can't be open seven days a week or open four days a week. They can't find cooks. They can't find... I, I, the area is still completely packed with people. I'm a real estate agent, and there's no rentals. I can't rent anybody anything because they're all filled. So I know all the people are still here, but where where did all the workers go? <laughs> like, that's a, that's a great they? question, like, why, by the way. Why yeah, is there, yes, it's so bizarre. It's like there's all these people here, and they keep shipping in more people. But, like, there's signs everywhere. Everywhere needs help. And there's so many places going out of business because they can't, they don't have anybody to work. And I'm just curious, where is everyone? They're here, but well, why are you know what? I, I can answer her question, uh, especially about in the restaurant biz. Well, one of our sons is, uh, was a prestigious chef at a prestigious New Jersey restaurant. And with all the shutdowns, he just got disgusted and he went to Florida. And he's down there now living at a condo on the ocean. Yeah, he got a great executive chef position down there. He's working full time. There's no mandates that he has to deal with. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people headed for greener, greener pastures, man. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Uh, it's an interesting story. And just as an anecdote, I was in Detroit, Michigan this morning and uh, went to a small restaurant. And the problem that the, the young lady articulates is exactly what happened there. That I talked with the owner briefly. He was there with two of his helpers. He said, I can't find anybody to work. We have, this is the first time we've been open in the morning in a couple of weeks because just nobody wants to work. And one of the things we know, and it's not as pervasive as it was, say, three or four months ago, but when you pay people not to work, they don't work. And that was one of the things that was happening with the federal subsidies of unemployment and the state unemployment laws where people were making, you know, upwards of $50,000 a year for not going to work, the equivalent of $50,000 a year. And so, you know, incentivize, when you incentivize something, you get, you get more of it. And uh, when you incentivize staying at home and not working and you, and you incentivize government funding and transfer payments, then people stay out of the workforce. And hopefully they'll come back. But to your point, here in Virginia where I live, there's signs out everywhere for we're hiring, we're hiring, we're hiring. And that's a great question. Where did all the workers go? Now, there's something that, uh, Mark, that a lot of people are not aware, but uh, President Trump, before he left, he signed, uh, I think it was it's called PED, which basically, basically prevents certain uh, shifts to come onto U.S. soil. Do you know anything about that? that uh, yeah, no, there was something about about the was it the Jones Act that you're talking about? The idea of what kind of ships can can come exactly, to ports? Exactly, the Jones Act. 
Yeah, there's there's some issues there that, re, you know, again, it's kind of this monopoly control that uh, unions have about where ships can be built, what flags they can fly, what ports they can come to. And it's a really interesting dynamic because, uh, you know, you'd think you'd want to you'd incentivize competition, you'd want to incentivize um, things that happen in America, but yet some of these archaic laws re- relating to maritime laws are really fascinating. And there's a great example of that right now going on, and it's kind of related to the supply chain as well. In Charleston, South Carolina, uh, the folks down there built the most recent port, the most efficient, newest, biggest port on the East Coast. The the East Coast is controlled by the International Longshoremen Association, the ILA. The West Coast is the ILWU, which is the International Longshoremen and Warehouse Unions. The East Coast has about 15 ports. And in in South Carolina, in Charleston, in Savannah, Georgia, and North Carolina, there's a hybrid business model where the – some of the employees are unionized and some of them are state employees and they work together. Certain groups run the cranes, other groups run the, 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 you know, the on the, on the deck stuff. And there's kind of job descriptions that are very, very rigid, which is a problem too. But the Hugh Leatherman port was a billion dollar investment in the port system in Charleston. It opened up in March and expected to have uh, ships coming in in April, but that immediately upon the, the port becoming open and ships beginning to head that way, the ILA filed a lawsuit against two of the big, large, the largest shippers in the in the world, Hapag Lloyd out of Germany and OOCL out of uh, out of Hong Kong, I believe they're from Oceanic or, uh, Ocean Lines or something, Carrier Lines. A three hundred million dollar lawsuit filed in New Jersey, saying that if in, anybody brought ships into this new Leatherman port, the ILA would sue them and take them to court because the union wanted all the jobs to be union as opposed to the workers there that were working at three other ports in Charleston that were, they were working together, non-union and union workers were working together. And, in fact, if, they, if the workers that were non-union became union, they would have to take a pay cut to end up working for the union. But so we have the most efficient, newest port in America on the East Coast that no one is using because the union has intimidated shippers and employers from bringing ships there in the middle of a, a supply chain crisis. I mean – Try to figure this out. No one's paying much attention to stories like these, but they're all over the place. And it goes back to your question about, you know, how we regulate uh, maritime activity and how we regulate shipbuilding and how we regulate, you know, flagships and coming to the United States and delivering products. I mean, there's so much regulation there that hinders and increases the cost of shipping and slows shipping down for sure. Well, unions play Uh, a pivotal role in protecting workers So your presentation is intriguing because it ignores the history of business in America and the fact that without unions, many workers would not have protected rights at the same level. And the transfer payments that you were referring to are payments typically that help poor people, but when the transfer payments go to the big businesses that get the lion's share, if that seems to be ignored and acceptable as just a part of doing business, taking taxpayer funds. Yeah, no, I, I don't accept. I don't accept the idea that uh, you know, if your premise is that I'm somehow against unionization, that's not true. Um, I mean, unions had a place. Everyone says that back when the balance of in the in the employment situation was out of balance, and employers were taking advantage of employees, and there was a place for unions there. There's a place for unions today, so workers can join together and amplify their voice if there are if they're being abused or if they're being mistreated in the workplace. And there's a place for unions in the future. But the problem that we have in the United states and the problem that i'm trying to articulate with the ilwu and the ila on the east coast is their monopoly power i mean these unions have been granted the power of coercion the power of force going back to the 1930s in the roosevelt administration the prior to the 1930s unions were voluntary organizations they were joined together they were strong samuel gompers the the father of the american labor movement in his final speech in el paso texas in 1924 to the delegates of the afl before the afl and the cio joined together he said the workers of america adhere to voluntary institutions anything else is a menace to their rights and what gompers was trying to tell the delegates was if they went to government to get power the power to force workers into unions, the power to force people into associations they didn't want to be involved in, then they were going to destroy something that was inherently stronger because members came to it for the services they provide, and they came to it on a voluntary means. So what's happened since the 1930s is union officials have gone to government for all this power. And in 1935, with the passage of the Wagner Act, 
the bill that basically federalized labor policy in America, union officials have had the privilege of telling an employer that they have to fire workers who don't join the union or pay dues to the union. That join the union element changed in 1963 in a a Supreme Court case called GM. The Supreme Court looked at it and said, yeah, we shouldn't be able to force someone to join a private organization. They still can force them to pay up to 100% of dues to keep their jobs, but they can't force them to join. So today, workers in 23 states can lose their jobs simply because they don't tender dues or fees to a private organization. In the 27 states that have right-to-work laws, workers get to choose about whether or not they want to financially support a labor union that stands up for causes and supports candidates they might disagree with. These are important issues when it comes to voluntary unions. So I reject your premise that my position is, you know, overlooking the, the, the things that unions have done in the past. I mean, what we're talking about is voluntary unionism, and there's none of voluntary unionism on the East Coast or the West Coast when it comes to ports. If you look at the contracts in, that govern the employees on the East Coast and the West Coast, you'll find language that says if a worker doesn't pay dues to the union, they're fired. That's a fact. Right, right. Uh, seven, uh, seven, three, two, five, three, nine. Do you have a question for uh, for Mr. Mix? Nope, just interesting. Nope. So. All right, two five, two five four, and a question for Mr. Mix. Not yet. All right, so this supply chain, uh, Mark, it's not just isolated to the United States. There's a supply chain. In the U.K., there's a fuel shortage. There's a, there's a lot of other, other issues impacting uh, other parts of the country, uh, in the world. So this is a global, global supply chain issue. Yeah, you know, I'm not familiar with what's happening there, if the delays are as large or as uh, extensive as they are in the United States right now. I mean, obviously, we're the number one importer in the world. So uh, a port crisis, a supply chain crisis uh, globally affects the United States, obviously, in a a very dramatic way. But you're right. I think I've read some stories about fuel and energy uh, shortages in Germany and, and the U.K. and other areas where, you know, we have to, again, here's a more regulatory policy that's been implemented over the last nine months that basically have turned the United States into an independent energy provider into now someone who has to go out into the marketplace and, and find ways to produce energy or to, to purchase energy. And we've seen how that affects gas prices. We affect, see how it affects natural gas prices. We're seeing how it affects coal prices, all of those things that we're using for energy. And, right. you know, we know that London and, and they want all the coal they can get now, and uh, so do other countries in Europe at this point. Yeah, and, and then the whole situation with OPEC telling uh, Joe Biden uh, that, hey, if you want more oil, you've got to pump it yourself. But then he goes, he goes and says, oh, well, I'm going to bring down, I'm going to shut down the, the Michigan pipeline. How crazy is that? Yeah, I mean, the, the debate over that, I think it's like Michigan Pipeline number five or number three or something like yeah, that is, is, is one of the issues. I mean, you, you, the, the better case study is actually the Keystone Pipeline. I mean, that, that yes. you know, here's a president that says he's the most pro-union president in the history of our country, and yet all of the workers on the Keystone Pipeline, because it was a project labor agreement, which means only unionized contractors can build or work on the project, Every single one of the employees that was put on the unemployment line when he said no more Keystone Pipeline were union rank and file members. And the, iron- right. the irony of all that was that the union officials here in Washington, D.C., spent their, dues, their members' dues money and, and political money to elect Joe Biden to the White House. In one week into his administration, he puts the rank and file workers of the operating engineers and the, and the pipe fitters union on the unemployment line. I mean – that's not pro-union. That's pro-union boss. And, and unfortunately, Biden has, has exhibited those types of tendencies in the past. He, he talks about workers on one hand, and yet by, by reducing energy exploration on federal lands, that put a whole pile of union workers on the unemployment line as well. I mean, his energy policies have probably hurt more union members than anything else, uh, let alone all of us at the gas pumps for sure. But that government policy and these decisions by Biden have, have made a real difference not on the not in behalf on behalf of the lives of rank and file union workers, but certainly on behalf of union officials here in Washington that are living pretty large right now. Oh yeah, yeah. And the other, the, the Keystone Pipeline is is, is a, it was a huge blunder by Biden and his administration because the Canadians were basically 
paying enjoy. for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah paying for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that, and then and then he goes ahead and, and approves the Nord Stream pipeline from Russia, basically enhancing the energy policy of Russians, so they can provide they can provide energy to Europe. And and you wonder um, why he would shut off pipelines in the United States and then be in a position to approve them or to say that they can go through, uh, you know, over in Europe. It's kind of an interesting question. Yes, and and, and something else that really strikes me, uh, and I, I'm quite sure that there's a lot of folks. In, in, in our country that do not are not familiar with, eighty percent of our medication drugs come from China. This supply chain is going to have a huge impact on on if it continues because according to some experts, they, they've been saying that it'll probably be up to twenty twenty two, early twenty twenty three that the supply chain artificial engineering uh, engineer crisis will be uh we will be impacted yeah i I, i'm not sure when it's going to clean itself out i mean it people have been talking about you know second quarter of 2022 third quarter of 2022 um you know that's really i'm not an expert in logistics when it comes to uh, the number of ships and the number of containers can be used but we do know this you know, one of the things that's happening there, as we already, as I already discussed in kind of the opening uh, segment here, um, is there's regulatory, there's a regulatory environment, there's a labor environment, there's all kinds of things that are adding to it, let alone kind of the increasing um, economic activity as well. So hopefully we'll get through it. I, but to your point about the importance of, of some of the medicine and the important components and automobiles and other things, I mean, another, another issue that this brings up is, you know, can we bring back some of that manufacturing to the United States. I think that during the four years of the Trump administration, there was an effort to do that. And I think there was kind of an onshoring, if you will, of some of businesses that had moved away with the new trade agreements that were, that were being negotiated. And, you know, the NAFTA, the demise of NAFTA, and then the new uh, code between Canada and Mexico and the United States. I mean, there were, there were some policy issues that were bringing things back you know, in reducing energy costs, reducing regulation, um, tax issue, tax policy, change the way businesses do, you know, operate. And so I think there was, an, there was a, a, an attempt, a significant attempt and some success in onshoring businesses again. But then now here we are with energy costs, costs skyrocketing, energy policy being, you know, being debated that will radically change the way we power our, our, our economy and, and our lives and other regulations that are coming up that are basically saying, hey, you know, we're not interested in attracting people here anymore, and that makes us more reliant on the supply chain, to your point. Right, right. And also, I, I think another impact on all of this is the current vaccine mandate that, according to what I've been investigating and researching, the mandate is not there. It hasn't really been put on the federal registry. So we're dealing with a mandate that it's impacting businesses already. As a matter of fact, the, the trucking industry is very happy because they're exempted from the mandate. Uh, but other industries, other workers, other businesses are not. How, 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 how is that going to impact the shortage of yeah. um, in, 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 in the trucking, in the port industries, in, in, in the different industries that impact the delivery of food. Yeah, well, it's certainly going to have an impact. And as, as a small business, the National Right to Work Community, the foundation, we're a, we're a small business. We have, uh, uh, you know, in the foundation has 40, I think, what, 48 employees, and our committee has uh, 96. Uh, but they, you know, it's interesting. It was last Thursday morning at around 8 o'clock, um, our corporate counsel got an email, and we got a 490-page document that talked about what OSHA was going to be releasing as it related to the mandate for vaccinations for employers over 100. And so by the time we got done reading it, what we realized is that by 12.01 a.m. on Friday morning, so roughly 12 hours or 18 hours from when we received 490 pages of OSHA rules explaining, well, 470 pages of explaining 23 pages of rules, I think is what it ended up being. Um, you know, we, anybody who had 100 employees at that point was now covered by this vaccine mandate. 
And it's been a hodgepodge of trying to understand what it's going to be, when it's going to affect it. It, it showed up in the Federal Register, I believe, on Friday. Um, so that would have been last Friday. So oh, now it it's, kind of, it's out there for the comment period, which is a 30-day comment period, I think. And it's unlikely they'll expand it. But, yeah, I mean, uh, come December 4th or January 4th or whatever actually they end up deciding to do, their companies are going to have to be deciding about whether or not they're going to hire the 100th employee or whether if they have 102 employees, they're going to keep 102. Um, you know, these are just really interesting questions. And I think, you know, from a standpoint of organized labor, the unions are really split on this too. I think the AFL-CIO, the umbrella of about 60, you know, 56 unions, is all in. They want a bigger mandate. They want more mandates. When you have, um, uh, you know, the firefighters union and the police unions pushing back against the vaccine mandate, you have various other private sector unions pushing back against it, some embracing it. But the bottom line is this, and the impact is going to be is it's going to affect the number of workers in the workplace. I mean, there are some people that, you know, and not to get into the, the – the science of the of the vaccine or the uh, the virus, but there are people that have natural immunity. Somehow that doesn't count. Um, you know, if you uh, if you haven't got a vaccine, you can't go to work. And we've helped a couple of employees at a university where the union told them they had to get a vaccination in order to continue to work. They called us. Our legal defense uh, operation helped those workers get an exemption. But yeah, I mean, this is going on all over the country in in you know exponential form and right. um, there's there's lawsuits filed at universities and colleges and, and workplaces I think what 20 I think 19 attorney generals have signed on to a lawsuit mm-hmm. blocking yes. the uh, and we've got a fifth circuit injunction right now that's basically in place that has a it appears that the judge the, the three judge panel there in the fifth circuit intended it to be kind of a national injunction um, generally, a, a court of appeals or a circuit court basically governs their particular area. That would be Louisiana and Texas. And so um, there's a lot going on there, and I think it will hurt. Uh, it'll hurt employment, absolutely. And 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 I'm not sure whether or not the final rule came out with an exemption for truck drivers. I'm I'm kind of intrigued. I'm I, I yeah. don't know for sure whether that's true or not. That was uh, that was um, that information came out this past week. Uh, okay. where, where the truck industry had indicated that uh, they were getting exempted from um, from the mandate, but uh, yeah, Congress part, also is exempt. Isn't that funny? Yeah, how that's Congress right. Exempted <laughs> themselves. Yeah, Congress is exempt too, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so you, you know, it's really um, interesting. You know, if it's such a crisis pandemic, how come everyone? You know, these individuals are getting exempted, but not everyone else. But one of the interesting parts, and, and I want to get your opinion on uh, OSHA, I was not aware that 26 states have their own OSHA regulations, that they don't really have to follow the federal OSHA. How does that impact, uh, you know, individuals, states? Uh, well, and, Yeah, you've got a constitutional question there, the supremacy clause. I mean, basically, the way this is framed as as an emergency, uh, I forget what the actual technical term is they call this, but it's an emergency, and then you have this, this, this supremacy clause issue of the Constitution that says the federal law would preempt the state law when it comes to things like this. And that's, that's kind of on the, from a simplistic standpoint, just in the statutory framework. States can't do things that are less restrictive than the federal government if the federal government has jurisdiction. In this case, it's an emergency uh, you know, uh, order or whatever they, they call it. And so it's likely that there will be a significant battle legally between whether or not the federal OSHA laws can override the state laws. I know Governor Abbott in Texas has actually said that he's not going to recognize the federal OSHA, and he, they've got. I think they're one of the states that have their own quote OSHA uh, of bureaucracy, and and so I think he's one that's already got out front saying. You know, we're going to push back, and we're not going to recognize the OSHA standards that are being put out on this. And yeah, yeah. it's going to be no, the lawyers are going to the lawyers are going to do well. That's what that that those are the folks that are doing. Well, <laughs> well it's, it's as a matter of fact, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, is uh, it's pushing already for that. Uh, yeah, I think Arizona, that's right. It might have been DeSantis. I apologize. I think DeSantis, it was. Him. Yeah, and, and Arizona. Uh, Governor Ducey in Arizona also had mentioned, and it, it basically tells it, those 26 states don't really have not really follow uh, the federal law at all. 
they they follow the state law and 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 right now the the states have a right and I think they have a really good case because there's really not an emergency right now. I mean cases are down uh declining in in every uh, the only part of the world that is not declining is Europe and every other part of the world so it's not really an emergency any anymore. Yeah, uh, you know, you're kind of getting outside my uh, my purview, but I <laughs> I have a personal opinion on that, and and I would agree with you. I I tend to think that um, you know the idea of making it an emergency at this point is is you know kind of an interesting uh, prescription for where we are and what's happened in states like Florida. I mean, the states you know that have basically taken it on their own and and kind of gone with their own guidance that seem to be doing better than the ones that are following the CDC and the uh, uh, and the federal bureaucracy as it relates to how we deal with this issue and how we're dealing with it now as opposed to when, you know, last year. Definitely. Getting back to the right to work, how many states have a right to work um, policy? Yeah, we have 27 states that have passed right-to-work laws, and we had five in the last uh, nine years. We've had uh, Indiana and Michigan and Wisconsin, Kentucky and West Virginia all passed right-to-work laws. And these laws are basically – this is a great example of kind of the, the supremacy clause uh, that we just discussed. Back in 1935, as I mentioned, the federal government imposed – federal control over private sector labor management relations. They said that we're going to take the power of regulating private sector labor management relations away from the states. We're going to bring it back to Washington, and they did. And the first attempt, the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, was ruled unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court. And Roosevelt didn't give up. They reintroduced a bill called the Wagner Act. And uh, during the interregnum between the legislature writing the bill and getting it passed, Roosevelt sent a message over to the uh, Supreme Court, uh, and the Judicial Reform Act of 1934, or whatever it was, was introduced. That basically said that any justice that was over 70 years old was going to get an associate justice. And at that time, there were six of them, so the Supreme Court was going to go from nine to 15. And of course, when the when the Wagner Act got passed through the House and the Senate and went to Roosevelt, it went to the Supreme Court again. And it was very similar to the National Industrial Recovery Act. But this time, uh, Chief Justice Charles Evan Hughes and uh, I think it was Owen Roberts, Justice Owen Roberts, switched their votes, decided that the Wagner Act was constitutional, and now we have a federal National Labor Relations Act policy mm-hmm. that was created then. And in the meantime, actually, once that happened, unions grew dramatically. In 1946, in the elections, there was a change in Washington, and they tried to think about how they could amend this act. And some legislators thought about repealing it altogether, going back to states' rights and having states regulate labor management relations. But, of course, once the federal government creates something, they never get rid of it. And so what they did in 1947, they passed the Taft-Hartley Act. And one of the provisions in the Taft-Hartley Act, which was an amendment to the National Labor Relations Act or the Wagner Act at the time, allowed states to basically say you could outlaw closed shop forced unionism if you could do it by an affirmative vote. So legislatures and and sometimes a vote of the people were were proposed, and states started passing right-to-work laws. But it basically – it's a privilege granted by the federal government saying if you can, by affirmative action, outlaw the closed shop, we'll allow you to do that. Otherwise, in the 23 states that don't have right-to-work laws, it's the federal law that imposes forced unionism on the workplaces in those states. So, for example, in New York, there's no statute that says workers can be fired to pay dues or fees to – can be fired for not paying dues or fees to a union. It's the federal law that gives union officials that power. So right, right now in this Congress, there's a bill um, that's already passed the House of Representatives, a bill called the PRO Act, which – is on the Senate floor or in, in Senate committee. It passed the House with no committee hearings, no testimony. It would repeal that privilege granted to states, and therefore it would wipe out all right-to-work states and reimpose the federal authorization for forced unionism in those 27 states that have passed right-to-work laws. Definitely. Oh, very, very, very informative. Um, so you live in Virginia, so you had an election about two weeks ago. Uh, you have a new governor. How is he in regards to the right to work? Uh, because I want to make sure there was two states that had elections. One of them was Virginia, and the other one was New Jersey. So, Mark, 
Yeah. And, and anyone, you know, who, who's New Jersey, the difference between the New Jersey election and the Virginia election in regards to the right to work, uh, right to work, because New Jersey is not, is Virginia a right to work state? It is. It is. And it became okay. a fairly significant issue in the campaign for governor and actually in the, for the, uh, the races in the House of Delegates in the General Assembly in Virginia. Uh, Glenn Youngkin, the governor-elect, stated, stated firmly that he supported Virginia's right to work law and would do everything he could to protect it. Terry McAuliffe, on the other hand, indicated that if the bill was put on his desk, he would sign it. He would sign the repeal of the right to work law in Virginia. Initially, and that's kind of ironic because in 2013, when he was running for governor, he talked about how great the right to work law was and how important it was for growing the economy in Virginia. And it was important enough that he made it a, a, a point of when he would go out and visit companies and he would talk about the right to work law in Virginia as part of the economic development tools that the, the Commonwealth has to grow opportunities for its workforce. And now, because he switched positions, it became a, a, a very large issue in the context of, you know, every campaign has four or five issues that kind of rise to the top of the debate between candidates, and right to work was one of them. And right to work, uh, the, the House of Delegates tried to repeal the right to work law in their last legislative session. The House there switched parties. The Democrats lost control of the House. The Republicans got back in control of the House of, Rep uh, the House of Delegates by two uh, seats, and, and Glenn Youngkin won the election in in, uh, in Virginia as governor. And one of the other issues that popped up there, going back to the teachers union, um, was the idea that, you know, when McCullough said, and I think this is a news, the story that got across the country, he said right. that he didn't think parents should be involved in making decisions about children's education. And that, that didn't uh, augur very well with the moms in, in Northern Virginia or anywhere <laughs> in the Commonwealth for that matter. And I think that cost him dramatically too. And in New Jersey, while, you know, Governor Murphy was reelected, I think ended up being narrowly um, the issues there were very similar, too. I mean, they might have been different issues, but there was a pushback against kind of the governors that had been managing their states in a way that I think most folks thought was uh, irresponsible. Well, uh, you know what was most shocking? You know what was most shocking in New Jersey? Oh, probably the most powerful uh, politician in New Jersey, the Democrat Senate Majority Leader, Sweeney, uh, Last election cycle, the teachers' union spent over $5 million to unseat this Sweeney because he, he, you know, he, he didn't completely kiss their ass. So they, they <laughs> wanted him out. They wanted him out. They spent over $5 million and lost. Sweeney won. Now, this cycle, to give you the, uh, the concept, the depth of the uh, anger out there, <laughs> This Sweeney <laughs> lost to a guy who spent a couple of hundred dollars, a, a truck driver, <laughs> defeats the most powerful politician in New Jersey where the teachers' union failed to do so. That's the depth of the anger out there. Well, anyone from New Jersey, uh, 908, uh, you have any comments in regards to uh, what Mr. Mix just mentioned about Virginia and what happened in, in, happened, what's happening in New Jersey, like Mark just mentioned. Well, I don't believe that Murphy won. I'll say that. Um, <laughs> I went to go, I went to go vote in my little town of Interlaken and they, I walked up and they told me I voted already. And oh I fought gosh. for about a half hour and um, I followed the instructions that um, there's a, uh, a little, uh, group that I follow and they gave us some, you know, before you go into vote, take screenshots of what Wi-Fi was outside the building, what Wi-Fi was going on inside the building and the Wi-Fi was changing. Once I got inside, it was, um, it changed a few times and, at the beginning when I went in, they said I already voted. I had asked, they said I requested some sort of ballot and I couldn't vote. And then they were telling me, maybe someone in your family voted for you. And I was like, no, nobody voted for me. And so I went back and forth. I made a big scene and I kept watching my Wi-Fi and screenshotting it. And then after about a half hour, oh, oh, suddenly, and, and the guy was letting me watch the screen suddenly the screen switched back and I was able to vote. So it went from oh I goodness. already voted to, 
to, oh, you could, so I made a big scene there and said, is this hooked up to the internet? Who's switching this screen? I'm watching the screen mm. change. What's going on here? And the guy was like, it's really <laughs> weird. I don't know. So the old fellow sitting there, he had no clue what was going on. But, and that was just, you know, I had a couple clients that day from Montclair that also said that they went to vote and their machines, I guess, were mysteriously down. So they gave them paper ballots and Sharpies, only Sharpies. Because we all know that you can't use a Sharpie because it won't read. So um, there was a lot of shenanigans going on all over New Jersey. So there are a lot of groups that are investigating it. I don't think Shitterelli gave in yet, but that's, I don't, you know, I don't think Murphy really won. Wow. So Mark, yeah. Mark, so Mark in Virginia, was, was that uh, something that was, the perception was that it was a clean election? Well, you know, I can't speak to that, but, but there are, they made it possible for anyone to cast a vote any way they could. I mean, they opened up the, the mail ballot, the early voting. I mean, it was an amazing, you know, kind of journey to where we were with the vote counted this year. And it was very close, obviously. But I think, you know, everyone thinks that there was pretty much – the integrity of the ballot was there. And, you know, I guess it depends on who wins. I mean, it, it's kind of an interesting question. But, you know, it's interesting to hear that story about the, the, the ballot box. My brother-in-law went to uh, cast an early vote, and he was there with some other individual who could not produce any identification, um, said, I don't have any, and, and but they let him vote. They let him vote some kind of provisional ballot. What happened to that ballot, we don't know. Yeah. Uh, my brother made a big, my brother-in-law made a big stink about it and uh, people got nervous and people started moving around and sweating about it. But ultimately, you know, the, this person was able to vote without, a, without any identification at all. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just you, that raises questions certainly about the integrity of the elections. And I think the best story, in, the best story uh, on election day was the Sweeney election in New Jersey. I mean, if anyone here who's on, the, on this conversation tonight doesn't think that getting involved in politics matters, that story is even great. I mean, I think yeah. the one video of the truck driver climbing out of his truck and saying, I'm mad as heck and I'm going to do something about it. And, <laughs> and he did. He did. Yeah, to Mark's point, did. I mean, the most powerful senator in the state was knocked off by a guy who, uh, you know, filmed his video on a, on, a, on a telephone and put it on TV for, for a little bit and, and uh, went to talk to people and visited some, some restaurants yeah. and people and did some door-to-door and got some volunteers. And, my gosh, he's going to Trenton next year. That's right. Uh, 254, you oh, have a question have... for Mark. Yes, um, well, it's kind of, kind of a question. Um, uh, in Texas, they have the right to work. They also have the right to fire fire you for any reason they think of. The labor union fights for you to keep your job. I'm just wondering, is that the way it is? Yeah, you're talking about two different two different basically laws. One is the right to work law. It deals specifically with the idea of you can't be fired if you don't financially support a labor union. The other statute you're talking about is called the at will employment doctrine. And the at will employment right. doctrine I mean there are eleven states that don't have right to work laws that have at will employment doctrine and that is you can quit whenever you want for whatever reason you want and an employer can fire you for That's whatever okay. reason. That's yeah. half always. Mm-hmm. What? Wow. So there, yeah, there's a difference between those two, and and union want, union officials want to say they want to use the the definition of the at will employment law as as the right to work law. There are two separate statutes; they deal with separate issues. And the only thing that the right to work law does in Texas is protect you and protect your job if you decide that you don't want to financially support a labor union. Right, right. The teachers uh, also have their own attorneys where they protect their lo- their jobs too. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things that unions should be doing, and and they, they you know they'll tell you they do that kind of thing, but the the grievance process is a perfect example of what you're talking about. It's for example, you're a teacher, mm-hmm. you're part of the union, you, something happens in your classroom, and there's discipline that's going to you're you, know, you may be disciplined. The union usually steps in and they will protect you. They will help to protect you. But sometimes they don't. It's a very interesting concept. In our Legal Defense Foundation, we have 21 attorneys that do nothing but help employees sue employers and unions when their rights are violated in the workplace. And we've had cases where two union members, you know, have a problem, 
And the union is, has a duty to represent both members because they have exclusive bargaining privileges. And not to get too technical, but the statute, the statute says that the union is the only person that can speak to the employer, whether it be in the private sector or the public sector. Every, almost every contract that's negotiated by a union has this monopoly power that says, look, employer, you can't talk to your employees unless we're present. Employees, you can't talk to the employer unless we're present. If you, employer, have a problem with an employee, in the, or if the employee has a problem with the employer, we have to be present, and you can't, you can't fix a problem with an employee unless we tell you that you can do it. And I mean, we, the union, tells you you can do it because it has to adhere to the contract. So this exclusive monopoly power, this, this ability to force you to associate with them, I mean, even in right-to-work states, you can be forced to associate with the union in the context of a grievance or in the context of having the union represent you. And these are powers that no other organization has, that no other individual has, really. It's an amazing uh, kind of uh, inventory of power for unions. But the idea of unions representing workers, if they're doing that, workers will join them voluntarily. They don't need force. And in, pe- in Texas, true. the teachers union is yeah. pretty strong there. They're pretty strong. And if you're mm-hmm. a teacher in, in the Texas are. school system, you'd, you'd want to join a teacher's union if they're going to protect you in oh, the workplace yeah. and they're going to represent you and they're going to get you benefits. I mean, join voluntarily. That's all we say, and that's all oh, yeah. the right-to-work law does. So and that's the difference. And I, yeah, yeah. You know, we agree there for sure. And if you think a union can benefit mm-hmm. you, then, then by all means, join. Pay oh, them I've dues used and, attorneys before. <laughs> Yeah. They're good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Uh, seven three two five three nine. Do you have a question for Mark? No, I I had a question, but now uh, it's been answered. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, Mark, do you, um, do you have any comments in regards to? Yes, uh, I just wanted to say. Yeah, I wanted to say we're sponsored by Students for a Better Future, a five hundred one C three. So if you can, please go to our website and donate. Thank you. Uh, 150% of our donations go towards the courts. <laughs> There's no advantage. Definitely, of definitely, definitely, definitely. It's a great, it's a great organization. But, so, Mark, what, what's the future? How do we see uh, in regards to the short-term, mid-term, long-term uh, supply chain crisis? Well, short term we got problems. Probably mid term we got problems. Long term, hopefully we, we we start to sort this stuff out and and we get back to a kind of a normal process where you know we've got the adequate number of truck drivers and we've got the adequate number of of folks that that are on the docks that can unload ships and and we uh, the, you know the economy normalizes to the standpoint where we get back to where we were. Uh, when apparently this wasn't a problem. I, like I said in the beginning, there are legacy issues there that need to be dealt with at the ports, and there are power issues as it relates to legislatures and unions that impact this. But there's, there's always work to be done, and you know, what, what's neat about this is problems get solved, and um, they, get, they, get, you know, they, they affect us. People look at them, and the market system usually takes care of it. Uh, we do know that the government rarely takes care of anything, but uh, they try, and, uh, you know, um, we can't probably stop them from trying. But the more, the more that the market comes in and individuals work on solving problems like this is what, uh, is what the hope that I have, and, and I think that's the hope that we'll, we'll solve the problem. Right, right. But do we see, do, do we, do we see a change in this current administration and how they're how are they going to basically, do they want to really come out of this issue, I mean, this crisis, or they don't? I don't, I don't believe they do. Yeah. I think they'll move on to something else very quickly. When this thing breaks down, like they've done with every other crisis that's been created since the administration took office, I mean, it, it just, it's amazing how they can flip-flop from one thing to another and never go back and address the issue that still is relevant as it relates to the border or relates to Afghanistan or relates to, you know, the... the, the the, the supply chain, all these things keep popping up. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it, and I appreciate Def- the input from the others, and so thanks for Def- the opportunity. Definitely. Do uh, you have a website? We do, nrtw.org, nrtw.org. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. We appreciate uh, your expertise, and, and thank you for coming on, and wish you the be- very best. Thank you. Enjoyed the conversation. Good night.
All right. So next week we have another fantastic guest coming on. We will really uh, be basing everything on the current environment, uh, what's going on in regards to the vaccination and and COVID. And uh, we look... We look forward to it. God bless America, and we'll see each other next week, 9 o'clock on the Cisco and South Zone Hour broadcast and politics. Good night. Good night.